Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to Sustainable Investing Perspectives on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining me for the conversation today, glad to welcome Amatia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Kristen Hull, the Founder, Chief Executive Officer, and Chief Investment Officer of NIA Impact Capital. Our conversation today will focus in part on how to approach investing in context to climate change as well as equality and diversity and the factors behind the growing momentum and investor interest in these areas. We will also touch on the recent energy rally and the implications of that to sustainable investing. So Amatia, Kristen, great to be with you both on the podcast today and very much looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for the invite. Looking forward to the conversation as well. Yeah, thank you so much. I am as well. Absolutely. So as a starting point, Amantia, I know within the latest edition of the Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, you do cite that since Q4 of 2020, we have seen a rally in oil prices, and that's been driven by factors such as anticipation of COVID-19 vaccine development and deployment and a rebound in global economic activity. So Amantia, how do you see these factors coupled with a potential prolonged rally in energy equities affecting SI strategies. Thanks, Dan, uh, for the, the question to kick us off. So uh, it's true, as you, as you say, uh, we noted uh, that oil prices are starting to recover, in part driven by uh, expectations of, of economies opening up uh, as vaccines will start to roll out. Um, we also note that the global traditional energy stocks have been laggards for several years now, um, and, and they were particularly sensitive to, COVID, to the COVID-19 pandemic um, as severe lockdowns really plummeted, resulted in plummeting oil demand and um, and therefore just general further hit towards these stocks. Um, and so for, for a lot of sustainable investing focused uh, I- investors, the question is, what would a potential um, energy rally imply for these SI strategies? And the answer is... Um, that it, in a way it depends. The short answer is that we don't believe that a potential rally or uptick would hurt sustainable investing strategies on mass. And part of the of the um, I guess the, the evidence that we look to to support this is the fact that firstly sustainable investing strategies are varied in nature and they take different approaches to um, how they treat the, the and how they include the traditional energy sector and fossil fuels as well as alternative energy allocations in. In, in their portfolios. Um, some SI strategies choose to exclude entirely fossil fuels and others choose to instead tilt to that fossil fuel or traditional energy allocation towards um, oil majors or other companies in these value chains that have better performance on ESG factors. So, so some of these companies that are relatively better compared to their peers uh, in, in, in managing the climate change and climate transition risks that may face them. And to give one example to, to quantify this a little bit, as of the end of January, we looked at the MSCI All Country World Index, uh, MSCI ACWI, and looked at the uh, the allocation of the energy sector in this index, and the, it, it was 3.02 percent. All right, so so just a little over three percent of this index was allocated to traditional energy. Now, looking at the MSCI ACWI ESG Leaders Index, which is the uh, 
part of the, the the index that is tilted towards companies that are better in managing these ESG scores, ESG risks based on their ESG scores. We saw that the energy sector makes up 2.3% of the overall index. So an underweight allocation, but what this implies is that even if we were to see a relative outperformance of the traditional energy sector, um, the, the this index uh, would not be significantly hit. In fact, uh, depending on how this energy sector would interact with other parts of the economy, with the performance of other stocks, it could potentially uh, continue to perform well or outperform. And, and speaking of performance, again, looking at performance data year-to-date as of last week, February 4th, um, the ESG Leaders version of the ACRI index continued to outperform by 80 basis points. And really over the course of 2020, it outperformed the, uh, its parent one by 166 basis points, uh, 1.6%. So the, really the, the takeaway is that the, we think that the, uh, implication will vary across strategies, but we don't think that, that SI strategies would be negatively, um, hit by a potential energy rally. And I would also add that higher oil and gas prices would also support the economics of switching to alternative sources of energy. So, you know, in, in a way, again, that's another argument to support the fact that a potential recovery of the energy sector would not detract from the performance of renewables or other climate change solution-oriented industries, which are often included in um, SI strategies, be they diversified strategies or or sustainable thematic strategies that are focused on some of these solutions specifically. Kristen Hall, you had some thoughts on that. So what's your take there? Well, thank you for the question. Uh, at NIA, we definitely think about this a little bit differently in that we are investing just in the solutions. And so when we talk about alternative energy, we really do see that as our only alternative as we move forward into a sustainable economy. So as far as being diversified, we're definitely diversified among different types of energy, and yet we do leave fossil fuels out. So as a follow-up to that, Kristen, how should investors who are focused on climate risk balance exposure to the traditional energy sector and climate change solutions? Well, you know, it's such a good question because I do think some of our investment rules are going to be rewritten in these times to fit the economy that we need to invest into. And so I know that um, particularly out of the Chicago School, we have a, a thought about being fully diversified in all of our sectors. And and some of the sustainable investment um, managers are actually choosing best in class among the fossil fuel industry. Um, I have a different thought in that really if we are going to invest in the solutions that can de-risk a portfolio because we're then not exposed to some of the commodities as far as the extraction and the pipeline and some of the risks um, that a dying industry can um, can hold. Perfect. Thank you for that, Kristen. So, Amantia, to pivot back over to you related to climate investing, I know we have seen breakthroughs in the carbon market recently with China announcing a national rollout of its emissions trading scheme back in January of this year. So can you share a bit more on what the implications of this topic are and what it signifies for investors? Sure. Thanks, Jen. And this is another development that we noted over the past month, which really um, is, is in a way a, a 
an indicator of the building momentum, increasingly building momentum of government focus across the world from, from all governments, including China, on, um, on, on pollution and on climate change and, and the carbon footprint, um, that, that countries have. Now, um, I think we've discussed here in previous months when, when China a few months ago announced its uh, net zero emissions by 2060 goal, and we've seen a gradual rollout of, of different policies coming that will support um, their achievement of that goal. So the most recent of these was an announcement of a long-anticipated national rollout of the emissions trading scheme in China. Uh, the announcement was made in January, and really what it does, it extends the efforts of existing um, emission trading scheme pilot programs that were already in place in, in seven different regions over the country over the past seven years. Um, now, I'll pause here for a second and just I'll, I'll review what an emissions trading scheme system is. So it's often, uh, sometimes it's known as a cap and trade system and is really a way to use a, a, a market mechanism to help curb the amount of carbon emissions or pollution in the air. So it's where usually a central authority will set an overall uh, um, amount of, of target or, or uh, kind of a ceiling on the the units of pollution uh, that that individual companies can uh, can emit over the course of a period of time, say say over a year, um, and then companies have the ability to either uh, choose to reduce their their own emissions or. To, to hit the specific quota that they have, or they can go to the marketplace and uh, purchase additional emission quotas if they if their business is such that they need to uh, that they can't curb their own emissions in over the given period of time, or if their business is is greener or if they're able to innovate faster, they can go to the market and sell their their additional emissions. So then you see uh, basically a, a marketplace. Uh, being created, which results in an overall collective, in a way, um, a progress towards this goal that is helped sell, set by the central authority. So now going back to China, um, this is exactly the scheme that, that we've seen being rolled out over the course of the month of January for the entire country. And, uh, in even, and it's truly, it's an initial phase for China, but even in this initial phase of the rollout, uh, we're seeing China being set up to overtake the European Union as the world's largest, uh, carbon market. So at the moment, um, the allocation of these free carbon credits, the, the, the quotas for, for Pollution that I mentioned um, implies a that one one percent efficiency gain on average for the sector that is affected, um, and it also implies a a equivalent of a three to five percent of payable credits for companies. Um, this means that. Uh, Companies that fail to achieve emissions reductions of around four to six percent of their current amount of reductions would have to go purchase credits in the market. Um, and you know, this doesn't seem like a huge sort of effort, huge amount of change or curbing of emissions, but it really, as we say, it's, it's a starting place. Um, for China, and we expect this to evolve um, over time. And and part of what why we have this expectation, sort of outside of the specific country context here, is looking at how carbon markets have evolved in other regions of the world. Is that they've they've tended to start 
to start low, to, to set relatively smaller emission curbing goals, as well as have and observe smaller, um, lower carbon prices, carbon trading prices. But over time, uh, they tend to uh, increase higher. So um, this over time tends to have a meaningful, uh, more meaningful impact. I should say, uh, in change. And, you know, what's the investor takeaway here is where one is that, again, this is another indication uh, that um, China is setting up for improvement when it comes to sustainable investing and opportunities are, are emerging in that market. Um, and also, more specifically, this national emissions trading scheme will have a material impact on earnings across sectors and um, we'll, we'll see how this will evolve but the, the immediate uh, beneficiary is the renewable energy sector uh, based on the potential for monetizing their existing additional capacity meaning their ability um, to, to sell um, the additional emission credits that they don't need to to, impl- to employ because uh, they are providing uh, low carbon energy solutions to the market. Okay, well, thank you, Amatia. It will be interesting to see how this story evolves over time in different parts of the world. Uh, clearly, implications that investors should be mindful of. So, thank you for pointing those out, uh, Kristen. I'm curious to get your thoughts on how regulatory changes around the world are impacting investment opportunities on this topic. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. So just to follow up, really interesting things happening in China, and yet we also don't have enough transparency into each of the companies there. And um, so it's going to be interesting to see also how the U.S., with this new administration, changes or shifts our relationship with China. And so will there be an opportunity to work together, particularly as the U.S. moves back into the Paris Climate Accord we are looking on our own shore here in the U.S. to be changing and shifting some of our own policies. And so will some of this interplay, because we definitely do have, particularly in the renewable energy sector, um, quite a few parts as far as, far as panels um, that are also made in China. So um, there will definitely be some interesting things to watch over the next four years. Absolutely. So, Amantia, maybe we can switch gears a bit to a different topic, which was also covered In the latest SI Perspectives piece, I know there has been growing momentum in the focus on diversity and equality recently, especially over the past year. So why is this a topic that investors have been focusing on and should really care about? Thanks, Ben. So, yeah, uh, truly shifting gears. I mean, one thing that we say is that there's a lot of opportunity and attention on the E of ESG, the environment, but the the S is is not the laggard. And on the contrary, over the last year, we've seen more and more attention be paid to social issues with um, diversity and equality really becoming chief among these social issues to, to which investors are paying attention. Um we're, and we're seeing multiple uh, pieces of evidence that, that are kind of building up this this holistic story. In part, uh, it was uh, the events over the the 2020 that brought issues of diversity really to the front of our conversations, uh, in particular here in the U.S., but but truly around the world. Um, secondly, we're seeing. Um, you know, this administration signaling that diversity and racial equity in particular will be a priority of the administration. And they're, they've started to demonstrate this intent with executive orders already that are mandating anti-discrimination training as well as, uh, uh, you know, more significant, um, requiring federal agencies to 
conduct assessments of, um, you know, equity of access of the resources and programs. And, and hopefully with assessments, then we'll have a clearer picture of what's missing and then further efforts will will follow, which will create opportunities um, really for all market players to, to come in and fill those gaps. Um, and the U.S. administration is really not the only driver. I mean, we're, we've seen a long-term societal shift uh, with uh, that is that is in part driven by um, a generational shift, a, a a shift in the composition um, of um, the the younger generations and what they care about, and so these. Um, this focus on diversity has really translated into a focus for investors, uh, marketplaces, and for companies who, who have to respond. Um, now, with all of that said, uh, companies are starting to respond, and so investors, in a way, investor pressure and attention is, is starting to pay off. Um, however, um, some many still lag. Um, one piece of one example, just to leave the U.S. for a moment, is to look at the U.K., where currently, because of some recent shifts, there are zero black people at the top of the uh, of the top 100 listed companies, the FTSE 100 as uh, concluded in a report by a diversity consultancy called uh, Green Park. So really, I mean, with the UK being a diverse country, this is a surprising outcome, and it also points to the how much um, opportunity for improvement there is in the corporate sector on these issues, but also how companies that are already moving forward and are ahead of the pack uh, are, are are likely to to benefit from one the benefits of innovation that come from more diverse leadership teams, more diverse boards, more diverse uh, teams overall, and then two from um, just being better prepared to respond to any regulatory shifts down the line that might require more transparency or more action, as well as to be better prepared to respond to their customers as, as consumers are uh, shifting their priorities and really narrowing in on these issues. It is interesting to see how diversity and equality, it does really vary across the world in context of corporate structure. And Kristen, we have discussed in the past with Amantia the challenges of data related to diversity, but also the different opportunities for investors to find exposure to this topic. So, Kristen, what does investing in diversity and equality look like in practice, and what are some specific ways through which companies can be evaluated? Well, thank you for the question, and I'll just follow up on Amantia. There's so much that companies can do right now, and I would say there's going to be both pressure from investors, particularly coming from women and millennials, as you mentioned, um, who really want to see and invest into the economy that is sustainable and inclusive. And so what does that mean for companies? Um, we are going to need to see some more um, transparent um, as far as reporting. So right now, companies in the U.S. must um, submit to the government an EEO-1 form. And so that isn't a perfect form, and it's definitely not comprehensive, and it shows one moment in time, and yet it is a starting place. So we are definitely asking to have companies um, disclose that form so that we can see where they are right now. Another opportunity right now um, that is definitely a growing trend and investors are asking for it is a diversity report and a meaningful one. So looking at the different places that lead to both an inclusive and a positive company culture. So we're looking to see what does recruitment look like? Um, what is the hiring process as well as a promotion process? 
um, and then also pay gap. So really disclosing what kind of a pay gap and for whom and at what level, that's going to be really important to see companies um, as investors seek more transparency into these issues. Um, the other thing that we looked at, particularly in the U.S., um, although we did ask our companies globally in 2020, was um, did the CEO or a governing body make a statement about Black Lives Matter? And we were seeing that about 50% of our companies did make that statement. We then followed up to, to really ask them, what are they doing both within their own corporations as well as in their communities to show that Black Lives Matter, um, particularly when they're looking to do hiring and be really competitive about getting this next generation um, the next generation um, of employees really wants to see an inclusive um, place to work. And so it'll be a competitive advantage as companies move towards um, more inclusive uh, operations. One of the other ones I'd like to just point out is that forced arbitration is really on the mind of investors right now. And so when employees need to sign a mandatory arbitration, that has actually been associated with both sexual harassment and racial discrimination. And so to the extent that companies can work to remove that policy um, and work towards more inclusive ways um, and less secretive ways of solving um, difficult issues, um, that's going to be an improvement. It's certainly on the radar of investors this year. Well, Kristen and Amanti, it was great catching up with you both today on the podcast and very much appreciate your insights on the topics we covered. Uh, there is certainly plenty to track, so looking forward to revisiting our conversation at a later date, but thank you again for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Dan. Thank you so much for having us, Dan. Absolutely. And again, today we have been joined by Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable Investing Strategist for the Americas with the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as Kristen Hull, the Founder, Chief Executive Officer, and Chief Investment Officer of NIA Impact Capital. As a reminder to our clients and listeners, the UBS Chief Investment Office authors a variety of publications and blogs that touch on timely market developments, asset classes, and portfolio allocation. These resources can be located on UBS.com forward slash CIO, and that includes the latest edition of the Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, which was cited throughout the course of our conversation today. So for UBS clients, you can also contact your financial advisor if you would like to learn more or receive a copy of the publication directly. Sustainable Investing Perspectives is part of the UBS Conversations podcast channel, which is available where podcasts are found, including on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.